Beginnings. Moving on. The book of Numbers. Chicago Marathon is run by many thousands of people. I've run it a couple of times myself. You're surrounded by men and women, all with the same primary goal. Now, there are a couple of people who run those races who have intense goals because they're the kind of people who are really, really fast. And they're running because they're competing. They might win or they might break some time like two hours and 30 minutes or they might break three hours. But the vast majority of humanity is nowhere close to that. And so everybody else's goal is simply to what? Finish. Now, you want to finish well. Ideally, you're going to finish running. You're not going to be carried across the line, okay? But, but the primary goal is simply to finish. Like I said, I've, I've run it a couple of times. On one occasion, though, I got to watch. And uh, I watched all over the place in different spots. But for a while, I stood relatively close, maybe 100 yards or so from the finish line. And I watched these people. And it was interesting to see the way people were coming towards the finish line. Some looked like they had not been running at all. I mean, they looked, they were smiling. And they were moving fast, and, and they were just, their, their eyes were on the prize, and they saw the finish line coming close, and they were just doing great. And other people looked like they were about to die. I mean, <laughs> and I like to think, I like to think that, like, when I'm coming towards the finish line, I'm running pretty hard. But the truth is, even if I'm running hard, I'm one of the people who looks like I'm dying. I, 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 it, somehow this face doesn't look good when I'm running. Um, I remember watching on this one particular occasion, this was far from the end of the race, I mean, it was the end of the race, but there were the majority of people still far away. But this guy was running, it seemed like he was going just full tilt, fine, and then all of a sudden, he wasn't. All of a sudden, he just slowed down, and it, it almost looked like he was just kind of acting for a moment, because he went from running to walking to suddenly he was kind of going in slow motion. It was like his body was shutting down and he didn't collapse. He just couldn't keep moving. So bizarre. And there were people who were more concerned about a fellow runner than their own time. And so a couple guys came alongside of him and basically walked with him and got him across that line. There have been a couple of sad occasions at the Chicago Marathon, probably like a lot of marathons, but uh, uh, one year, and ironically, when I checked the my memory of this, I found out I I was actually running this very race. There were two brothers from Seattle who came out to Chicago to run that race together, and they'd run the whole way. And they got to, you know, uh, marathon's a little bit over 26 miles. Um, They got to the uh, 26-mile line, and at that line, Luke and William high-fived each other and set out for the last 385 yards of that race. And William got to that finish line, he crossed it, and he turned around, and he waited for his brother. And his brother never came. His brother dropped in the last 385 yards of a 26-mile race and died. Tragic. It was a warm day. His body temperature was 107 degrees. There's nothing as tragic, probably, as, well, nothing. There, there are a lot of things that are really tragic, but it's really tragic to die when you're running a marathon. But more generally, there's something inherently tragic about stumbling at the finish line and not making it across. It happens, and it's tragic any time, whatever the cost. 
But there's something profoundly tragic about stumbling at the finish line when God has said to you, the finish line is yours and what's on the other side is my gift to you and I am willing to go with you and I will give you all that you need to get there because what I have on the other side is so good and you've been longing for it and waiting for it even if you don't realize it and I want to make it possible for you to get there. I promise you will make it. And to still not make it. That's what happened with God's people a long time ago. What threw them off? Well, lots of things can throw us off. Lots of things can trip us up in life. But there's an old friend, probably not a friend, an old, but acquaintance isn't the word. It's someone we know really, really well. It's someone who walks with us all the time, always lurking around. If we forget about him, we find him tapping on our shoulder. If we kind of lose sight of him for a while, all of a sudden he shows up in our vision at the most inconvenient time. He makes it so hard for us. And sometimes he seems to be the biggest reality in our lives. And I'm talking about our friend, fear. Fear can make cowards out of any of us. Fear can prevent us from doing what we really want to do. Fear can stop us dead in our tracks and make it possible that we will not experience what God offers to us as a gift because we can't see the gift and we can't see God and all we can see are the things that look so scary out there. You know the story. We've been telling it. That God created a world and on that, in that world, God created human beings for himself to know him and be loved by him and to love him in return and to take care of this planet, to rule it, if you will, as, as his vice regents, his, his under rulers, his under leaders on this planet. But very early, human beings kind of screwed it up. <laughs> Not kind of, just did. It happened. It's a reality and, if you will, a spiritual infection that every one of us since then has received the moment of our conception, of our birth. We're born kind of with a bent away from God and a bent away from trusting a God and a bent away from doing what he wants us to do and a bent away from loving him and honoring him as God and kind of wanting his role in our own lives. God started again, as it were, a couple of different times. At the time of Noah, he judged the world Kind of had a clean slate. Noah was a great man. But it didn't take long for things to go wrong again. And so God looked at the whole world and he said, you know what, I'm going to work with one family. And he found a man named Abram who didn't really have a family. He had a wife, but they had no kids. And he said, Abram, in spite of the fact that you gave up having kids a long time ago, I want you to know you are going to have a son. And a great family is going to come from you. And I'm going to bless you and care for you. And among the things I'm going to give to you and to your people, I'm going to give you uh, uh, just a fruitful family. There's going to be so many of you. And I'm going to give you a special land. And I'm going to be your God in a special way. I'm going to bless you. And it will be possible for the people of the world to really know blessing and really know me depending on how they relate to you and to your God. And God fulfilled that in so many ways. 
Sometimes it seemed that things went bad, or sometimes it seemed that things were being tripped up. Regardless of how people screwed things up, God kept the story going. When they followed him and trusted him, it was smooth sailing. But when they didn't, things got really hard sometimes. But God never gave up the plan and never gave up the work. Things really seemed to be going bad when a famine hit the land. People were running out of food and there was deep uncertainty. It was uncomfortable to live then, but it was uncertain whether they were going to survive. And one brother long gone, whose father thought was dead, but had been sold into slavery in Egypt, had risen and was, was leading in Egypt and caring for the nation in this difficult time. And the people came, the family came, and they were blessed by their, their brother and their son, even though they didn't know who he was. It was such an awesome uh, time and, and an awesome setting that God's people actually relocated to Egypt and settled down there and worked there. They had their own section of the country, and they populated it. And it was good until... The people of Egypt and the leaders of Egypt got nervous about them and made slaves of them and made it hard for them. Before long, some of them didn't even remember God's promise to them anymore, but some of them held on to that and they cried out to God. They even remembered his name. They called him Yahweh. They cried out to him. God, Yahweh, God of Abraham, you made a promise long ago. Have you forgotten us? Are you anywhere? And God heard their suffering And he listened to their cry and he remembered his covenant and he sent his man Moses to set them free. And that's where we are. Moses had led them out of Egypt. He confronted a powerless man in and of himself with an enslaved people going up to the most powerful ruler in the region saying, let my people go. And that ruler did not want to let them go. Again and again and again, he didn't want to let them go even though he experienced God's judgment and God's power. But finally... He did. And now, it's a little over a year later. God's people are out in the wilderness. And they've been been by Sinai for a while. He said, it's time. And so, the the scene begins. And the, the cloud of God's presence among the people lifts up. And people say, this hasn't happened for a while. And people start realizing it's time to go. And everybody starts packing up and the tabernacle is packed up and they go on a move for the march just like we heard about on that video. And they don't go very far, but they come to a region and a place called Kadesh. Kadesh Barnea. The wilderness of Paran. And there they are within striking distance of the land that God has promised for them. So close, you can taste it. It's like being at the 26-mile marker in a marathon. There's really only 385 yards left to go. So close. It's almost over, which means it's almost beginning. And so what do they do? They send some spies into the land to check it out and look it out. And Moses tells them to do that. God tells them to do that. Go ahead. Have a look at it. Find out what's there. Find out what the people are like. Are they impressive or not so impressive? Are they rich? Are they poor? What's the land like? Is it tough land or is it rich land? Is it fertile? What are the, where do the people live? What's the, what's the setting, the, the civilization? Do they live out in rural settings or are they in major cities with walls? Is it strong? And what do you find there? 
And so these 12 men, representing each of the tribes of Israel, head off north into the promised land. And they walk through it. They are there for 40 days, and they traverse around. Spies is really not probably the best word in some ways. Because I don't think there was anything secretive about their visit. They weren't sneaking around. They weren't wearing disguises. There were no glasses and nose on any of these guys. They were just moving around, checking it out, looking at everything. And then the food... The food was way better than what they saw. They were tired of what they were eating. They'd only been traveling a short time. Come on, guys. But, but there they were. The traveling food was manna. Remember that question? What is it? And the guy didn't really answer. And do you know the word manna? That's basically what it means. What is it? They got it. And they didn't know what to call it. So they called it a question. And it kept them alive. And it was fine. And it wasn't God's plan that they would eat that forever. But sometimes... I don't think that God wants to give us everything when we're on the journey when he wants us to get someone somewhere. And so the good food was going to come with the promised land, and that's what they found, pomegranates and figs. And man, in this one valley, the Eshkol Valley, which is really, if you translate it, it's the, the, the cluster valley, okay? There were just clusters of grapes everywhere, huge grapes. It was rich what was there, and they cut off this huge cluster of grapes, and it was so large and so heavy, and they had so far to to travel that they had to hook it up on something, and two of them had to carry it together. When I'm at a reception and I come to the fruit tray, sometimes there's these mammoth um, clumps of grapes. You know what I'm talking about? You want, you want like half a dozen grapes, and there's no option. You feel like you're not supposed to put your hands in there and start ripping it apart, but you feel like uh, it would be ridiculous to grab them. Anybody ever struggle with this? <laughs> I've never yet grabbed the whole thing. I want you to know what looks like a huge cluster at a wedding reception was nothing compared to what these guys were hiking back with from the promised land, to show to God's people. And so when the folks showed up, everybody gathered around, and they wanted to hear about it. The whole community, as much of them as could get close by, gathered around and said, what's it like? What's there? And the report came, it's a beautiful land. It's an impressive land. There are people there. There are uh, cities there. There are, uh, there's a civilization there. There is food. You won't believe it. And get a load of these grapes. But, but, and there was a big but in that moment. These spies, if you were, came. And there were two reports. This is often the way it works when a committee works on something. Uh, A committee will come, ideally, with one report, one voice, but not always. Sometimes there's a majority report, and sometimes there's a minority report. And the majority report went like this. We can't go in. We can't possibly go in there. And the minority report is, it is so great, how can we not go in there? The majority report majored on not what was there in terms of resources and blessing and food and opportunity, But what was there in terms of danger? What was there in terms of people? What these people were like? The minority report majored on this. The land is so beautiful and God has promised it to us. He wants us to go. Let's do it. It was that simple. 
I want to read with you some words of scripture from Numbers chapter 14. And just to take a look at a moment. This is after the, the spies, as it were, have returned. And we're going to throw these words up on the screen. All right. And why don't we stand together as we listen to these words. All right. And then the whole community began weeping aloud and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. Two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, tore their clothing. They said to all the people of Israel, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It is a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. And then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me even after all the miraculous signs I have done among them? I will disown them and destroy them with a plague, and then I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they are. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. God had made a promise to his people, and he wasn't about to leave them and forget them. But they forgot him so quickly. A year camped out by Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. That mountain where God showed his presence in a most real and powerful and fearsome way. The God who came down there, who spoke to them, was a God who was impressive in his power. There was something awesome that said, don't get too close. That's how great he was. And yet, he was the God who chose these people and loved them and set them free and cared for them and made promises to them that he would fulfill. He did three important things at that mountain in that year there. He renewed his connection with them. He made a covenant with them. You are my people. Listen to these words from Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He renewed his covenant with them. He gave them his law. Not just ideas, not just suggestions, not just uh, my perspective. You all make up your own mind about how to live. But a, a, a pathway, a constitution, a set of guidelines. Not suggested guidelines, but guidelines that show you how to live in the best way. The best way, the way that would honor God and the way that would care for each other in the way that would bless a community, the way that would help your own life and the life of people around you flourish and be at its best. God gave them, this is how to live. And then, because God knew his people, he knows us, he knows that we don't always get it right. In fact, it's really easy for us to get tripped up 
or actually to go the wrong way because we choose to. For when we walked away from his guidelines, God gave us something to do. He gave his people a means of dealing with that moment. He gave them a tabernacle, a place for his special presence. And he gave guidelines again for sacrifices, whereby people could come to God and admit the truth of what they'd done and how they'd failed him and a deficit and a debt they owed him that they could never pay. And by the shedding of blood of somebody else, that debt was cared for. And God set those things in place. And then he said, it's time for me to move and I'm going to remind you that I will lead the way. I will be in front of you. When you see the cloud of uh, 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 guiding you by day or the pillar of fire by night, you know where to go. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love for it to be so clear that God spoke to you out loud or had a special messenger in your very community who he communicated in such a way that that person could walk to you like I could come to you on Sunday morning and say, this is exactly what God told me specifically for your life and your community this week. Here's what's going to be happening. Here's what I want you to do. And here's the promise I'm making to you for right now. And if there's any uncertainty, when you leave this place, you are going to be, see a physical sign of my presence and closeness to you. Just follow wherever that sign takes you. And sometimes we wonder. We're not sure about God. We're not sure we believe in God. We wonder where he is. We've, none of us have ever seen him. Is it just a figment of our imagination? I watched a little clip, a video clip of an interview with uh, Steven Pinker, a professor at Harvard who's just written a book praising the impact of the Enlightenment on our world and how much better our world is getting in so many ways. And there's a lot to be said for what Professor Pinker is saying. But Professor Pinker has absolutely zero place for what we're doing here this morning. He thinks it's a joke. He's ridiculous. There's no scientific evidence for God. He thinks he's just a doubter. If you listen to his little interview for a few moments, do you know what might happen in your spirit, in your mind for a few moments? You could have those questions too. Scientific evidence for God. Nobody's ever seen him. I haven't heard his voice out loud. I haven't seen the cloud guiding me by day or the pillar of fire by night. Oh, if only I could see a sign like that would convince Professor Pinker then we'd be okay. Guess what? At some level, I want to be respectful. I don't know the man, I haven't read his books, so I'm not going to say much. But I think there's a lot in Professor Pinker that doesn't want to believe in God. Because there's a lot of convenience in not believing in God. Especially if you're a professor at Harvard and you make good money and your life is doing fine. But the truth is, That even when everything was so clear, somehow or another, the things you and I ask for, God show me a sign, God speak to me, make it unmistakable. Even when God provided those things, guess what? People didn't believe. Here, it's it's really clear. If you trust me, you will be blessed. If you follow me, I will bring you into this land. If you believe me and do what I say, no enemy will defeat you. But if you don't trust me, things will go bad. If you don't believe me, you're on your own. If you don't follow my way, I will not be defending you. Can it be any clearer? 
God actually set up a system where if you do the right thing, everything's going to be okay, and you do the wrong thing, there's a challenge. If you believe God, he's going to take care of you, and if you don't, you're going to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. So simple. And do you know what? They couldn't get it right. Does it make you wonder what we're longing for in life? We think if we just had this, it would all be so clear. But that is not the way God is working in our lives right now. And I think partly because when it's too simple and too clear and too obvious sometimes, we actually don't get stronger. And our faith doesn't get deeper. God's people in Israel, when they were set free, God took care of them, but everything was right there, and they didn't trust more fully. They didn't trust more deeply. They did not obey more quickly. Now, the God who set Israel free is a God who speaks to you and me today. And even when he was so close by, those ten spies who went into that land, if you look in Numbers chapter 13 of the words they talk about what they saw, you will see that they describe everything, especially the people. You know what they called them? Giants. Giants in the land. They were big. I know what that means. It was like an early... Um, it, it, the, the predecessors of, of Hollanders. Okay? This is where the Dutch actually come from, is, is that land of Canaan, way back when. It's just my theory. Check it out. Okay? Really tall people. And the Jews were not so tall. And they were just, they were giants, and the guys thought of themselves as grasshoppers. That's what they said. We're like grasshoppers next to them. What would we say today? We probably wouldn't call ourselves grasshoppers. I'm a shrimp. I'm a shrimp next to them. So little, so powerless, so not able to get there. But you know what was not present in the spies' report at all? God. God wasn't present at all. I want to tell you something, that when God looked at his people, And he looked at the people who were in the promised land who were there, an unjust, difficult, dangerous, morally corrupt, unjust civilization. God was not intimidated at all. They saw themselves as grasshoppers. But listen to what God says. Isaiah chapter 40. Do you know that chapter? Do you know what Isaiah 40 should be in your life? It should be an underlined chapter. Should be a chapter you go back to again and again because it's a chapter that will give you strength. It's what God says. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people, can I add a word? All its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. You know what God's saying to us? He's saying to us deep down through those words, I want you to be people like Caleb and like Joshua. When you see things in the world around you, 
I don't want you to be more impressed by the challenges and more impressed by the power and more impressed by the size, more impressed by the money, more impressed by the dazzle, more impressed by what attracts you, more impressed by what intimidates you than you are by me. Remember the design of the, the community that was shown on, the, on one of the schemas, schematics up there on the, on the screen? When the tabernacle was set up, it was right in the midst of the community. And the tribes were arrayed around it. Three to the north and three to the south and three to the um, east and three to the west. They surrounded the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies, which didn't contain God, and yet God's presence was there in a special way for them. And around that were the leaders, and by the entrance was Aaron and his family, who were the priests. And God wanted them to understand a couple of things by that. Number one, that he was in the center of their life, in the center of their community. Number two, that he was always there. Number three, that though God was close and he cared about us and he was near to us, near to his people, nonetheless, you couldn't toy with God. There was something fearsome about God And so you didn't just go directly to God on your own. You didn't go marching into the Holy of Holies. There was a way to get there, and the family of Aaron, the priests, were the source of that way. God was teaching his people that you and I need a go-between to really know God, a mediator, someone to represent us, someone to care for us, someone to speak on our behalf, someone to speak for God. There it was, right there, laid out in the, in the, um, the setup and the design of the community. And then when it was time to move and time to leave, God's presence would rise up and go ahead and God's people would follow him. See, the two things that God wants us to realize all the time, we never forget this. We don't build tabernacles now, but we are never to forget this, that God wants to be in the center of our lives. What's the center of your life? What's the thing that gives you meaning and purpose? What's the cause that directs you? Is it just yourself? Are you just float around by the whims and the fancies of the culture and the society around you? Or is there something that's lasting and something that's powerful and something that's good and something that's eternal and it's not just a something, it's a someone. That's there. And then that God isn't just at the center of our lives but he is in the lead of our lives. That we actually go where he goes. Remember what Jesus said? Seems like a really big picture but a different picture but it's not. When Jesus came along and he would meet people what would he say to them? Not a rhetorical question. What do you say to him? Follow me. Follow me. Jesus was leading. And when he chose his disciples in Mark chapter 3, it says he chose them to be with him. The same kind of design as the tabernacle set up. In the center and then in the lead. And Jesus says, I want you to follow me, but I want to be with you. That's the key. How about you? How about me? What are the things that challenge us and make it difficult for us to know what to do? Hmm. You know, sometimes uh, we are very aware of God's goodness in our lives and of his faithfulness in the past. But then sometimes we forget. 
were the things that make you afraid. On Halloween night, a woman writes, my three-year-old grandson Brian couldn't sleep because he was convinced ghosts were in his room. It's all in your head, his mother reassured him. Now go to sleep. Before she got down the stairs, his voice called out again, Mom, the ghosts have left my head and are running around my room. (laughs) Hey, do you know what? Sometimes there are very real challenges around us. And sometimes there are very real challenges within us. But no matter what, God is bigger and God is greater than any of them. And God doesn't want us to allow fear to shut us down in life. To stop us from going where we believe God has created us to go. To stop us from doing what we believe God has created us to do. Even in our lives with him right now, sometimes we just are stuck. There's some people in this room right now who have, who have issues in your life in the past or maybe right now. And you honestly are not sure that it'll be okay. There's somebody else in your life and you wonder if they knew about this, I'm not sure they would forgive me. I'm not sure God can forgive me. There's a fear in that. But God's word to us is that in Jesus Christ, everything we've screwed up, no matter what the nature of it, is something he dealt with in Jesus on the cross, our mediator. Some of you aren't so much concerned about the forgiveness, but there is something in your life. There's a sin in your life. There's a struggle in your life. And the reality is it seems to be more powerful over you than you are over it. And you hate it, and you hate yourself for it, but you can't be set free, and you've given up. Now, I'm not saying to you that things are easy, but I want you to know something. That the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people of Israel, and the God of Jesus, is above the earth, and we are like grasshoppers to him. And all of the problems and struggles we face are smaller than grasshoppers to him. And he will be in the center of your life and he will lead you and he can enable you to move on. Some of you care about some other people who don't know God. They don't know Jesus. You struggle with them. You look at them. You love them. You care about them. You don't know what to do. You cannot actually envision that they could ever possibly say yes to Jesus Christ. It's out of your control as far as you can see give up. But the God we follow is a God who's able to reach into somebody's life and into the heart, into the core of their being and to change it and to take up his tabernacle presence at the center of their lives. Some of you are dealing with things in your life right now, at home, in your life. Some of the things are inside of you. Some of you are Uh, or people in our lives are hurting from cancer right now. Some of us have something different inside of ourselves, like depression. We can't seem to figure out how to get past it or how to get out of it. And sometimes we despair. God doesn't always give us specific promises, but he says this, I am the God who will never leave you or forget about you. I want to close this morning just by reading something I read yesterday by my friend, And some of your friend as well, a man who's spoken for us on multiple occasions, Lon Allison. 
Lon was the head of the Billy Graham Center. Before that, he directed evangelism and prayer for the Covenant Church. He's a pastor at the Wheaton Bible Church of teaching and outreach. And he has really bad liver cancer right now. This is what he wrote yesterday. I had my sixth chemo infusion this week. It was Valentine's Day, and Marie and I had a lovely lunch together in the chemo room. She brought me a balloon and card, and I gave her a pair of Wonder Woman socks, for she is my Wonder Woman. There's a picture of us on my Facebook page, should you desire to see it. It is Saturday morning and my day off from work. It's cold and snow still adorns our landscape. Marie is working and I'm in a reflective place. Prayers in God's word remind me of his presence, promises, and peace, even when I don't sense him. I'm kind of stuck on the tarmac. I've sat in airplanes for hours stuck on the tarmac because of weather or flight conditions. You can't fly and you can't go back to the gate. No fun. That's my metaphor for living with this cancer today. We're doing what we can do and now that the chemo plan is 50% done, I'll get a CAT scan on Monday to see if the chemo has reduced or minimally stopped the aggressive growth of the tumors. I hope so. Don't know though. I'm on the tarmac. When I think about the present, it is simply to wait and do what we can do, which doesn't seem like much. I think of the next few months and essentially in a holding pattern, both in my personal and ministry life direction. I don't want to sound whiny and ungrateful to God. My daily health is strong. I'm still working full time. But while on the tarmac, it's hard to think proactively. That's a new reality for me. On a happier note, next week and our family will get away to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin for a time of relaxation, maybe even skiing. Here's my prayer requests. Number one, that I will sense God's nearness while I'm on the tarmac the next few months. Number two, that the CAT scan will display progress and open the door for surgery in June to excise large portions of the tumors in my liver. And number three, that I will believe and live by God's promises and not by my problems. Grace to you all and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Your brother and friend, Lon. Guess what? The promise of God to us that he is big and bigger than anything in our lives is not a promise that we're about to step into the promised land. Not us, not right now. But it is a promise that he will be with us. He invites us to be with I'm going to invite our uh, uh, worship team to step up and let's pray right now. God, we're here in a lot of different situations and circumstances in our lives. Some of us are just stuck in any number of ways, just from living, from moving forward. We're discouraged. Some of us have been particularly stuck spiritually in trusting you and believing you in obeying you, in taking risks in our life, in our life with you, we've let fear rule the day. Help us to replace the fear of things with the fear of you, which really means help us to replace our huge respect for the problems and challenges all around us with an even huger respect for you. Help us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.